Mama and Daddy Shenall lived on a little farm outside of Cartersville. Mama and Daddy Shenall is what we called them. My dad's parents, my grandparents, they didn't own the farm. Uh, they were sharecroppers and uh, tenant farmers. They, they really managed the soil there and they lived a very, very simple life. They lived in a frame house up on the top of a little hill. And I can remember that my parents would pack us up when we were children and we would make the journey from South Georgia where we lived up to Cartersville up above Atlanta. And we would visit there for a number of days. Life was very simple. In fact, it was, it was so different from the life that we were leading. It was just another world entirely to go and to visit them uh, early on because it almost seemed as if uh, Abraham Lincoln should be just around the corner. They lived a very different life. Um, they would go uh, to the end of the back porch and they would draw well out of uh, draw water out of a well that was located there. Um, when it was time to uh, have supper, they would fire up the pot-bellied stove in the kitchen. Uh, when it was time to wash us kids, they would put us in a tin tub there on the kitchen floor, you know. And I see some of you shaking your heads. You remember some of the, these uh, things in your own experience. I can remember that uh, we thoroughly, I especially, I guess, because I remember it so, so well, loved eating uh, Mama Chanel's biscuits. They were just heavenly. And the pinto beans that she always had cooking as far as back as I can remember. And just the aspect of being there in their presence. I never did pick up even once that they thought that they were poor. Even though uh, from our perspective, and we were not well-to-do, um, but from our perspective, um, they had basically nothing. But I never, ever, ever picked up from them that they were doing without. They always seemed to have this sense of contentment and that God would provide what was needed in their situation. Howard Hanger, in his little book entitled Drinking Deeply with Delight, tells of a little girl at bedtime who said to her mother, are we rich, Mommy? And the mother thought for just a moment and said, why do you ask? And the little girl said that one of her friends at school had said that it is really cool to be rich, that rich people are happier. And her mother knew that she needed to think real carefully about this conversation. And so she said, she said, oh, they are right. They are absolutely right that there's a big problem, however, with being rich. And the child said, like what? And the mother said, you've got to be rich in the right way. And the child said, there's more than one way to be rich. And the mother said, of course there is. Oh, heavens, yes. There's money rich, of course, but then there's also family rich and laughter rich and love rich. There are all kinds of ways that you can be rich. Can you think of any way that you are rich? And the child after a moment said, yes, you can be friend rich. 
I am friend rich. And the mother said, of course you are. You've got all kinds of friends around you during the day that you love to play with. And then the child thought again and was remembering what they had had for dessert at supper. And she said, and you can be chocolate chip cookie rich. <laughs> and the mother said, why, for sure you can be chocolate chip cookie rich. These are excellent ways to be rich. And the mother, breathing a sigh of relief, said, money rich isn't always cool, you know. It can be, but you've got to have some of the other kind of rich to go along with it. We've got gobs of those other kinds of rich in our lives, don't we? And the child said, so we're so cool. And you, the mother said, and you better believe it. We are so cool. How is it that you think about your life? How is it that you consider what the Lord has entrusted to you? Do you have a sense in which you are blessed beyond imagining? And Jesus prayed for his disciples. You can find that prayer over in John chapter 10. In the 10th verse, he says something very specifically. He says, he says praying, and it's strange that we have this prayer in that it was something that God was communicating with God. Jesus was talking to his heavenly father. And yet somehow we've come by way of it. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Have it abundantly. Would you put that definition on the way in which you think about your life? We would do well to reflect on the way in which our possessions, how great they are or how little they may be, can rob us of life. We should be about the work of storing up treasures, not for ourselves, but for others and for the use of God in good service in his kingdom here on earth. Near the end of John Wesley's life, he preached a sermon that he entitled The Danger of Riches. Now, John Wesley had preached many sermons on money throughout his life. In fact, one, the use of money is one that is oft repeated in fall stewardship campaigns. You'll probably hear it again this year at Pittman Park, in which he talks about three principles of stewardship. Earn all you can, you know this, don't you? Save all you can and give all you can. He preached that sermon over and over again throughout his ministry. But when he was near the end of his life, he wrote in his journal, that he was going to write another sermon. And the reason was that he had not heard anybody preach on it for 60 years, including himself. And he entitled it, The Danger of Riches. Talking about specifically how dangerous it is the way that we think about what we have. When Methodism was in its infancy, it was a very pliable organization. He never intended to turn it into a denomination. It just sort of happened because it continued to grow. 
He saw it as a renewal movement for the Anglican Church. But what was happening in the midst of it was that the early Methodists, when they were converted, when they became followers of Christ in this new way, when they were saved into God's recreation of their lives, they began to be very responsible citizens as well as responsible church members. And they began to be profitable in the things that they did because they didn't spend their money unwisely or at least as unwisely as they had previously. Some of them we know had to be converted in order to give up things that were vices. It's amazing not only what kind of emotional damage alcohol can do within a family, but it can also wreak economic turmoil. And some of these early Methodists had struggled with alcohol being a part of their lives. And because God helped them to set that part of life in order, they were able to get other parts of life in order as well. And yet as Methodism matured, the members of the church began to be more well-to-do because of God's blessing them with a steadier equilibrium in life. And that was a dangerous point to be at. And that's why John Wesley wrote that sermon called The Danger of Riches. And he said there are all kinds of indulgences that we take, especially the food that we eat, far fancier than any of us should want or deserve. Money wasted on food. Not just the amount, but the amount wasted on what we eat. And drink, and even the furniture that we sit on. Oh, does it have to be so fancy, he asked. The paintings that we hang on our walls and our homes, the books that we surround ourselves with, the gardens that we pride ourselves on. These are John Wesley's words, not mine. The pride that's a part of our lives. Is there any sense of contentment there? Even what we judge to leave to our families, to our children and our wills, does our intention honor our connection with God. Which brings me back to uh, this passage of Scripture, which is interesting to me. It starts off with this conversation between Jesus and someone in the crowd who asks him to be the arbitrator of a situation in which obviously the older son has gotten what was culturally correct. Maybe there was a time of transition in Jesus's day where this was becoming less correct. We know it's a part of Old Testament history, the the Hebrew history. You remember the the, the stories from the Old Testament about how the, the older son would inherit the larger share of the estate in order to pass on the estate in the family and to keep it there. The younger siblings would divide the lesser portion. 
But here, this sibling is asking that it be divided right down the middle. Now, this sounds like he's a U.S. citizen. He's pretty modern. He's wanting what is rightfully his. Not more than what's rightfully his, but he's wanting no less than what is rightfully his. I know that this is an important matter for Sue and I when we think about our will. We've done this just recently, thinking to ourselves, we certainly would not want one of our daughters to think they were more fortunate than any other daughter because another daughter, if she felt that she had been slighted in any way, might think that we loved her less. That is not a scenario that I want to happen. Is it yours either? We want things equally divided, what little we have, you know. I mean, they may be dividing a $10 bill between the three of them. I don't know. But we want it to be equal. That's our way of thinking. And so this modern way of thinking has presented itself to Jesus, and Jesus bows out on this because he knows it's not so easily solved, this issue. You remember Jesus used another parable about this older brother and this younger brother. The younger brother comes to the father. He asks for his part of the inheritance, which is something you don't do. You just don't do it. Even in our day and age, you don't go to your father and your mother and say, okay, go ahead and give me what you would give me if you die. You just don't do that. But this father, loving the son, does give And the son then goes off and spends it needlessly. Now the older son who is there has already known that he is receiving two thirds of what was coming to him at his father's death. The younger son has taken a third, his third, and gone off and wasted. But then he turns around and he comes back. Now, can you imagine why the older son would have been upset? Because the younger son was pushing in on his two thirds. Anything at that point that he would receive would be coming out of his pockets, right? Because this is all that his father had to give. Here in this story, you can see the angst. I guess this guy was the younger son. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Split it down the middle with me. And Jesus wasn't going to venture into this because he knew that the problem was that the young son had a heart that was not content. There was a sense of his identity being tied up with the things that he wanted. This is a very dangerous place to be. And Jesus, when he tells this story, he maintains his investment in what he is trying to teach of the good news. And that is that we would live contentedly. He tells the story of this farmer who because of the circumstances lives a very blessed life. The harvest comes in better than anybody could imagine. And when it does come in, he has to decide, okay, what do I do with all the grain that has come to me? And so he came up with the idea, I'll tear down my barns, which are too small to begin with. They represented me years ago, but they don't represent me now. And he built new barns in order to house all that he had. 
do you pick up on how he does this in his mind? He's thinking not of anybody else or God. He's thinking about himself. I think that you and I get stuck on the save all you can aspect of a financial portfolio when this is something far more important. You and I are being called to an intentional life of simplicity in order that others might see God's care working through us. Harry Denman was the chairperson of the general board of evangelism during the first part of and the mid part of the, uh, the 20th century in the Methodist denomination. He was one odd character. They tell the story that he only owned one suit, one suit. When he would come to town, he would walk the streets and visit knocking on doors to ask people to show up to church, even before he got to the church to shake the hands of the pastor that was there to greet him. He was one odd character. You can imagine that he put some sweat on those threads that he was wearing. You may ask yourself, how in the world did he get by with one suit? That's all he had. When he went to hang up that one suit in the closet, he didn't have to shove it in for want of room. He had one suit. When it got dirty, he would go to the laundromat. He would say, do you have a side room I could step into? He would take his suit off and hand it to him through the door. They would take it away and clean it. When they got it dry, they would bring it back to him. He'd put it on, be on his way again. He was one odd character. And the reason was that he wanted to keep life absolutely as simple as it possibly could be so that every single resource that God brought into his life could be used for the building of the kingdom. I'm grateful that there are people like that that are a part of this church, that are a part of this community, that are in the world who see themselves as stewards of God's blessing. Charles Dickens tells the story of Scrooge. You've probably seen the movie or the play, but have you read the book? Because the way in which Scrooge, the way in which Scrooge is described is a very unique sentence. Charles Dickens in The Christmas Carol describes Scrooge's greed and he says he was a secret, self-contained, and he was solitary as an oyster. Isn't that an interesting description of Scrooge? The affliction of this rich fool here is that he was solitary as an oyster. He was turned in on himself. Jesus was saying, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And then he tells this parable of a rich man who thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. 
And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. This bumper crop, the way that he saw it was for him. It was God's blessing him. You see that he was praying to himself, not to God. He was talking to himself. As he considered his situation, there was such self-focus, not about the community, not about the world around him, not even about God who had blessed his life in this way. This abundant harvest was given by a God who loved him, and yet he could not see it. Instead of looking inward, Christ calls us to look outward, outward toward the community, to the world, and to God himself. And so I ask you, you may be saying to yourself, well, I am not rich and I am not a farmer. And so really there is nothing for me here in this parable. Do not be so easily dismissive of this parable. Jesus intends it for all of us. Jesus wishes for us to live lives of contentment. How contented are you right now with what God has provided? Are you contented to the point that even you can see that God might use what you have better than you have up to this moment? How is it that God wishes to use you? Love generously in action through your life will surprise us all. As we come to the close of worship, I want to open this altar. Now, it has in some way fallen out of Methodist methodology to come to an altar call. Um, I'm going to beckon that you come just for the sheer opportunity to feel what it is like to walk the distance between your pew and this altar. And I want you to come as a prayerful individual, simply to ask God when you get here, Lord, what do you want me to do with what you've given me? I want you to come 